Church, our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 17, Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of those Black Pew Bibles that are in front of you, or maybe perhaps underneath you, and you can turn to the second book that is in your Bibles from the front, the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 17. And if you're willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus 17. This morning we are in verses 1 through 7. Listen to God's word. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. It's always easier to start something than to finish it. Uh, We kind of understand this. Uh, Some of you might have maybe a stack of books by the nightstand, and you've started a lot of them, but you've finished very few of them. Or perhaps you've taken up a lot of different hobbies, and your garage is just kind of littered, with the remains of numerous unfinished projects. I remember when I was at university and my goal was always to read through the Bible, but I was probably better at collecting Bible reading plans than completing them. Abandoned blogs, abandoned fitness goals, all sorts of enthusiastic starts that never quite reached the finish line. And the same thing can happen when it comes to Christianity. It is certainly possible to get out of starting blocks quickly, to spring with joy concerning the gospel, only to grow grow weary and perhaps even risk not finishing at all. We have only to think about Paul, who said at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4.7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And yet, sadly, just a few sentences later, he had to write about one of his co-workers 
Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Here are two men who had ministered together, Paul and Demas, mentor and mentoree. One endured and finished the race and looked forward to the crown of righteousness. And the other man peeled off. He was enticed by the world and was never heard from again. I mean, Demas was a young man. He had seemed like a promising young man. I mean, he kind of rubbed elbows with Mark and Luke. And as far as we know, he did not make it to the end. Whether you're a new Christian or a seasoned one, what you need is endurance. You need endurance. This is what we see this morning as we return to our exposition in the book of Exodus. It is a warning to the Christian. It is a cautionary tale against unbelief, rebellion, grumbling, and warns us that if you remain this way, you will not make it to the finish line. Your salvation could be at stake. Now, When you first read these verses in Exodus 17, you might think it's strange that that's the main idea of the passage, that it's a warning against unbelief and the danger of not enduring to the end. After all, isn't this just the third in a series of grumblings that we have seen thus far from Israel? I mean, back in Exodus 15, they grumbled at Mara because of the bitter water, and then they were given sweet water. Chapter 16, they grumbled about food. And they were given manna. Now chapter 17, they grumble, about, they grumble at Masa Meribah and get water from the rock. So whether it's Mara or manna or Masa Meribah, it's all about not grumbling and just trusting the Lord, right? Well, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. That's in your New Testament. And we're actually going to do a little bit of Bible flipping today. To understand our passage better. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Turn with me there in your Bibles. And follow along with me. As we read these first six verses. That we have in 1 Corinthians 10. It says this. For I do not want you to be unaware brothers. This is the Apostle Paul writing. That our fathers were all under the cloud. And all passed through the sea. And all were baptized, meaning they were following into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. It's always helpful, isn't it, when you are working through a passage to have a divine commentary tell you what it's all about. So how are we to understand Exodus 17? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us at least one of the points here is that we are to see this incident as an example It says in verse 6, they are examples for us, the word tupos or type for us, a warning that we would not desire the evil that they did. 
This is going to be very helpful for any of you who want to know your Bibles better. Uh, that when you're reading an Old Testament passage, because sometimes there are two extremes when people come to understanding the Old Testament. One extreme is that they take stories in the Old Testament and understand them to be merely like moralistic tales. You know, this is the season of VBS where they take Old Testament stories and then they make it into all these moralistic tales. You know, be courageous like David. You know, be, have faith like Deborah, but don't be like Jezebel, you know. And people are rightly critical of this approach to the Bible. It feels legalistic, and you create heroes and villains, and all you have to do is strive and follow and be like these people. That's a problem. But there's another extreme. To react against that sort of error by saying that we don't ever find models or examples in the Bible. There is a school of interpretation, principles of hermeneutics, principles of interpretation in the Bible uh, that says the only function of the Old Testament historical passages is to highlight redemptive history. Meaning, all they are is to basically show us God and what God is doing in redemption. They're not to give us moral instruction. They're not to give us practical advice for day-to-day living. But what does God say? Here in 1 Corinthians 10, they are an example. In verse 11, if you skip down there, they say, now these things happened to them, to Israel, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Yes, we read our Bibles and God is always the main character. Always. I don't want to diminish that. His self-revelation certainly is a prime concern. Redemptive history is important, but ethical instruction is not only relevant to us, but ethical instruction is based on these events in the Old Testament. Paul goes on record to say that God has so ordered history, and even the history of Israel, that thousands of years later, they would function for our benefit, for your benefit, Christian. To grow in grace to train us in the way of righteousness. So it's not wrong, parents, for you to say to your kids, for you to say to your children, dare to be a Daniel, you know, something like that, you know, that's very popular. Look at different examples of men and women of faith in the Bible. And at the same time, we need to connect the dots, don't we? About how this passage turns and points us to Christ. That's why we pray, show us Christ. 1 Corinthians 10 is instructive because it really does both. It says they're an example to us by negative example, and it's going to point us to Christ. Now, very briefly, what does Paul say to the Corinthians about this, about this incident here at Meribah, at Masa Meribah? He says, like Israel of old, you too are on a pilgrimage. A pilgrimage to the promised land. And like Israel of old, you too may be derailed. To enter into the promised land by an insatiable craving. Israel had experienced an exodus by the hand of God in verse 5. What does verse 5 say in 1 Corinthians 10? Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Is this saying that you can lose your salvation? Absolutely not. Once you are justified, you cannot become unjustified, but it is possible to be part of the visible fellowship of God's people, an insider, so to speak, and prove in the end to have really been an outsider. They ate the manna, 
they drank from the rock. And still God was displeased with most of them, and which is a little bit of an understatement. Because only two of them of that generation would actually enter into the promised land. In other words, it is possible that you come Sunday after Sunday, perhaps taste of the goodness of the word of God, only to rebel at Massa Meribah. So turn back with me to Exodus 17. And we see from Israel's example two warnings, one encouragement that we might make it to the end. Now first we are warned in Exodus 17, do not test God. We are warned to not test God. Look at verse 1. The whole congregation moves by stages. Now that just means that they went from place to place to place, and that's kind of recorded for us later in in Numbers 33. They move by stages according to the commandment of the Lord, meaning the pillar of cloud takes Israel step by step by step, and finally they encamp at Rephidim, which is kind of their last stop before they get to Mount Sinai and they receive the law. The word Rephidim means resting place. But as resting places go, they were really disappointed. This place has no water. And in some senses, you could even say it's worse than it was when they, made, they, when they were at Mara. Because here, I mean, at Mara, at least they had some water, even though it was bitter. But here, there's no water. Now, it's unclear if there was supposed to be water there. Uh, some commentators speculate that the Israelites are actually being kept away from the waters at Rephidim by the Amalekites, who will begin to trouble them in the second half of the chapter. Another possibility is simply the water just dried up. We don't know. But they are disappointed. Now, the Israelites ought to have known how to handle this kind of situation, because this isn't their first rodeo, right? A few days in, they grumbled at Mara after the exodus, and they got water, didn't they? A month into their After the exodus, they got manna. And this is only a few weeks after manna. This is like probably a week later. Because we know the timeline here is short. So somebody should have piped up and said, Hey, guys, remember back at Mara? Remember how good it was? Remember the water was bitter and and Moses threw that stick into the water and it made it sweet and for us to enjoy? Remember, just this morning, we just had what? We had manna. And it was delicious, these frosted flakes, whatever they were. They were tasty. Let's see what God will do. Maybe, maybe he'll give us coffee, strawberry cream, red currant tasting notes. Yum. Maybe he'll provide spindrift, half and half, sparkling water to quench our thirst. Of course, they don't do that. It says in verse 2 that they quarreled with Moses. And the word quarreling is very important because it indicates that the Israelites have reached a new level of hostility. It's more than just their usual grumbling and complaining. The word actually has overtones of hostility, of physical confrontation. If you search this word around in the Old Testament, it makes sense that, that Moses says in verse 4, they're about to stone me. They're about to throw me over the cliff and throw rocks to kill me. That's how fired up the situation is right now. And Israel issues an ultimatum with Moses. Do you see that? Give us water. 
Give us water to drink. You know what? You, Moses and Aaron, you guys are holding down on us. You brought us out here to kill our children, to kill us, even to kill our little animals. And although the people pick a fight with Moses, their real argument was with, the, was with God, isn't it? Moses says, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? That's what's really going on here. Look at verse 7. It says, he called the name of the place Masa and Meribah. And if you look in your footnotes, you can see that those words mean, what those words mean. It's as if Moses renamed Rephidim as Testingville and Quarlesburg. Why? Because they are quarreling and testing God. Earlier at Mara, and in the wilderness of sin, when they got manna, Israel was being tested by God. And here they say, no more tests from you, God. Now we test you. We give you tests. Now think about why you give a test to somebody. It's to prove that they can do what they say they can do. You, get, you, you, you give a test to someone so that they can demonstrate something, so that they can prove something. You know, in Taekwondo, you take a belt test. Why? To prove that you really are a black belt. In math, you take a test to prove that you're an A student, not a C student. So do you see why testing God is such a serious sin? It's saying, me, myself, ignorant me, blighted with sin, imperfect me, will test you, God. God, you might have given me manna this morning. You might be right there in the cloud, but, you know, I demand more from you. I expect more from you. You have not earned my respect. Prove yourself. Do something, God. Jump, God. Jump. And commentator Douglas Stewart likens this to a child asking a mother while she's in the kitchen, are we having dinner tonight? I mean, can you imagine mom in the, in, in the kitchen? The oven's on. The air fryer's going. Plates and cups are on the table. She's got her apron on. She's stir-frying vegetables. And a child comes and says, Anybody making dinner? You can see the mom just stop mid-stir. Turn over and look. And say, excuse me? Do you have eyes to see? Because you're not going to have any eyes much longer. (laughs) Do you smell it? Can you hear it? Don't you see what I'm doing? And all you can say is, we can have dinner or what? And that's what we do with the Lord Almighty when we test him. We say, God, you're answerable to me. The service around here is no good. You work for me. I don't like it. You're answerable to what I view to be justice. What I think is right or wrong. You, don't, you can't tell me what I can and cannot do. Explain your behavior, God. Why COVID? God, why does your word say this about sexuality? I will not trust you to make my marriage. I will not trust you in my marriage unless you make it the way I want it to be. I will not trust you until you make me better. I will not trust you until you make my child better. Until you give me the job I want, the relationship I want. Until you give me a better pastor. One, two, 
three strikes, you're out. Is the Lord among us or not? That's the way we're to read it. It's not like, oh, I'm inquiring. No. This is a testing, a quarreling with God. And it's demonic, beloved. It's demonic. This was Satan's strategy when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. He said, throw yourself down. Prove yourself to be the son of God. And Jesus, thinking back to the Exodus, says what in response? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. It is a measure of our rebellious human hearts and our maturity and humility when we can say, God doesn't have to answer any of my questions, any of my tests. Certainly, yes, we can cry out to him. Certainly, yes, we can give him our laments. We can cast our cares. We can even give him all our questions that we do have. But we don't test him. Beware of testing him. To make it to the end, we are warned, do not test God. Second, we are warned, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. Now, this may not be immediately obvious from our passage. Do not harden your hearts. But turn with me to Psalm 106. That's kind of in the middle of your Bibles. Psalm 106. I told you we're going to be flipping a lot today in our Bibles. Psalm 106. And look at verse 9. Let's start in verse 9. Psalm 106, verse 9. It says, He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy, and the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. Look at verse 13. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. They had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. This is what's unfolding here in Exodus. This is just the beginning for the people of God. They demand God's provision. They demand God's protection. They demand, they doubt God's presence. Leland Riken, a commentator, writes, it's as if God's people were suffering a kind of spiritual amnesia. Now flip back. We were just there for our call to worship. Psalm 95. Flip back to Psalm 95. This is an important passage for us to understand exactly. We've seen it manifest itself. The people are manifesting their actions through their testing. But here is what is happening in their hearts. Look at verse, uh, Psalm 95, verse 7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. In other words, instead of remembering, instead of waiting, they harden their hearts. I think those two things go hand in hand. We need to remember and we need to be soft. 
But here they put off remembering and they put on hardening. They had seen God's gracious works, signs and wonders and miracles of mercy. God was providing manna daily. And God was there, pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. They had tasted the heavenly gift. But instead of being softened to trust God more and more in the day of trial, they hardened themselves. They said, I'm going to forget it. They do not trust God's goodness. They murmur. And do you see that warning here in Psalm 95? It says, you are in danger of a hard heart. And that word, hardening their hearts, comes is the same word that we see earlier in Exodus when Pharaoh hardened his heart. What was Pharaoh like? Pharaoh saw the hand of God and what? He just forgot. He just stopped remembering. And what does he do? Harden his heart. Harden his heart over and over. And he keeps willingly forgetting and going on his own path. And the warning here is clear. Masa Meribah was just the beginning. And if we harden our hearts in the day of trial and murmur against God and continually throw away our confidence and hope in God, we risk being cut off. Now, again, I'm not saying you can lose your salvation. I'm a convinced Calvinist. I mean, I know there's only five points, but if there was eight, you could give me all of them. I believe true Christians persevere. It is written all over the face of Scripture, all over the Bible. They will persevere. But God uses both promises and warnings like we have today in order that we might persevere. So are you listening? Do you hear or are you just hardening your hearts more? The warning is if you are characterized by one who always stubbornly forgets and says, never remembers what God has done in the past. You are characterized as one who treats the grace of God with contempt. You are never satisfied with his guidance and provision. If you are constantly, constantly trying to deconstruct, becoming more hardened, more embittered, you will not enter into God's rest. And certainly there are some of you here this morning that need to hear this word. Hebrews 3, which quotes Psalm 95 and this incident in Masa says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Brothers and sisters, where, where, where is your heart? Is it growing more and more soft each day or is it hardening moment by moment? Christ is greater than Moses and the loss incurred in rejecting Christ is greater than the loss in rejecting Moses. The rebels in Moses, they missed the promised entry into earthly Canaan. But consistent rebellion, rebellion against Christ forfeits the even greater blessings of eternal life. So don't wait to figure it out till tomorrow. Today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your heart. To turn away from the living God is a dangerous thing to do. It's a terrible prospect. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We're back in Exodus 17. If you want to turn back there, Exodus 17. We're given two warnings already, but here's the encouragement. Look at verse 5 and 6. This is 
unbelievable, amazing to me. God consents to be accused. And God just says to Moses, go ahead into the wilderness, go past the group of Israelites, go ahead into the wilderness at Horeb, take with you the elders, because I need them there to be witnesses to what is about to happen. Take your staff, this staff that you used in Egypt as a form of judgment that hit the Nile to make it undrinkable, that struck the Nile to make it undrinkable. Use that same rod and strike the rock that water may pour forth. And it happens. <laughs> what incredible mercy. God, God doesn't do anything. He, he could have just, if it was me, I'd smush every single one of them like little ants. But here, he demonstrates mercy to them. Don't you think he's saying something to them? This is before they even received the law. He's telling them right here. He's not saying, it's okay to disobey me. He's saying this. When you get to Sinai, you're going to receive my commandments. And you're going to get confused. You're going to think, obey my commandments, and then I'll, be, I'll bless you. I'll do good to you. No. Before you even get to Sinai, you learn that you did not earn your salvation and you don't deserve your salvation. You're going to falter. You're going to fail every step of the way. But I will bless you because your salvation does not depend upon your goodness or your deeds. It depends on my covenant promise because I will hold you fast. God is debunking the idea of an earned salvation, of a works salvation before, the, before Israel even gets to Sinai. Even more, we have this rock that Moses strikes. And though it's not mentioned here, Psalm 105 says, He, God, opened the rock and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. In 1 Corinthians 10 that we read earlier, Paul, said, Paul writes this, They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, what does it mean that the spiritual rock followed them? I mean, did Moses carry this rock around as a portable well? Or, you know, in my mind, when I first read that from Paul, I was imagining a boulder with legs on it, and it was just kind of walking along with them. Well, it certainly isn't any of those things, and it certainly is not literally Jesus, that somehow in his incarnation he humbled himself and took the form of a rock, in the likeness of a rock, right? That's not what's happening. What Paul is saying is that Jesus was there. He was the source of divine food. And protection and presence. He was feeding them. He was guiding them. He was following them, providing them for them every step of the way. And just as Christ was present with them in the wilderness, he is present with his church today. The rock, in other words, was a type, an example, an analogy. Christ was ultimately their provision and protection. He was the manifestation of the divine presence. All the things that they grumbled would be met and superseded by Christ. Look to the rock. That's the encouragement. Look to the rock. Stop looking at all these other things. Look at God's provision and protection, his presence. It's right there. You see, Christ is the ultimate provision for all mankind. We were all made to find our provision, our protection, and in the presence of God. Because of sin, we, were, we are separated. We have been separated from God. And what he owes mankind, what he owes you and me, is just judgment. An eternity of wrath. But God, being rich in mercy, gave us his son, Jesus, the perfect provision for our salvation. And while we should have been struck down in judgment, 
Christ the rock was struck. He died upon the cross bearing the penalty of our sins and from him pours forth living water for all those who return and trust in him. Friends, non-Christians, today he commands all people everywhere to repent. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but turn from your sins and look to Christ. Hide yourself in the cleft of the rock of ages. Trust in Jesus. Repent today. Draw near today that you might know his joyous presence always with you forever, holding you fast. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful that you have given us examples by which we might live our lives in a way that pleases you. And these examples are given to us that we might endure to the end. So we ask and plead with you that you would keep your servants from presumptuous sins. To not let, us, let those things dominate over us. That we would be blameless before you because of Christ. And we ask that the words of our mouth, the meditation of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight. Because you, O oh Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.